Welcome to Inside the Banjoverse, exploring the minds of folk music's great artists. If you love the stories behind bluegrass, Irish, folk and Americana, then this podcast is for you. This is Enda Scahill from Irish bluegrass crossover band We Banjo 3. Before you freak out, don't worry, there's actually four of us, and mostly just one banjo. That's me. Tenor banjo lived on the periphery of traditional Irish music for the longest time, partly due to its association with African slaves and with travelling or itinerant musicians in Ireland. Its journey into mainstream acceptance started with Barney McKenna of the Dubliners, but was propelled into popularity by Tipperary-born musician Jerry O'Connor. Described by the Wall Street Journal as the single best four-string banjoist in the history of Irish music, Jerry is one of my all-time musical heroes and a huge influence on me and my banjo playing. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jerry O'Connor. So how are you doing? Good, good. Yeah. Are you, en- are you enjoying? Uh, you're you're not home very often, are you? Are are you home a lot of the time? And this is. <laughs> I'd be home forever. <laughs> would you Would you choose to be at home forever at this stage? Um. You know, that's gosh, that's a difficult question to answer, and it's surreal, isn't it? I mean, there's there's an apprehension. On, on one side that, you know, will there ever be work again in the larger venues that, that we're, we're used to and that we sort of use as a sort of, a, what would you call it, like a... Income? Uh, yeah, well, as a measurement of, you know, your career is developing. Your, you know, like musicians tend to do that. You know, you move from little folk clubs of 50 people, then you get into one that's 200 people, then you go to one that's 500 thousands and you know what i mean and it seems to be like almost uh, a token of your success that you that you you measure the size of the venue so i don't know i mean i don't know like the band that i've been playing with the dublin legends it's 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 an it's an older more mature audience i don't want to sound ageist here because i'm one of them myself so i can't insult anyone but you know um so maybe trends won't matter as much. They're they're the type of people like that. A lot of them have seen it all and and and, and done it all before, and it's hard to scare them. So they want they're going to come out to see us anyway, you know. But they're the uh, the cocooners largely as they've been yeah, labelled here. Yeah, I mean, I just visited my parents there a couple of days ago. I'm just back actually. I hate that word cocoon, and, and the two of them like they're they're real rebels. You know, they don't take it on board at all like they don't, they don't buy into this thing but you know they're they're 94 and what 88 they're entitled to their opinion i think at this stage <laughs> of their life, wow know. 94 and 88 it's amazing yeah, still, still driving well my dad the one thing just for the last six months he can't play the fiddle anymore and um, he had a, a um he, he had this um a growth on between his chest and his arm and it was not malignant but it was sort of cancer so he's had radiation treatment hates hospitals, doesn't trust doctors. This is the first time in his life, in 93 years, he's been in a hospital. Wow. I, I think he was born at home. <laughs> My, uh... That's the type of people that, that, you, that you're dealing with. And, you know, who am I to go against them at this stage, you know? Yeah, my mum's my dad was the same. He wasn't in hospital or saw a doctor from yeah. the minute he was born until a couple of months before he died. Yeah, and... And he, d- he lived till 92. Yeah, well, look, and I don't want to see a doctor either. <laughs> I'm not a good patient. You know, I mean, quite out of choice. You know, just, um, I- I'm not saying we're like ostriches, like we put our head in the sand and it'll go away, you know. But, um, you know, they're of that generation, you know. Yeah. 
Anyway, onto the onto the music. Um, it goes without saying that in terms of Irish banjo, there is no greater uh, what's the word I'm looking for influencer. That sounds like a very modern word. I feel like don't. I feel like come out. I I know I promised I wouldn't do this, but. There is no greater influence in the development of Irish music than Jerry O'Connor. And I, I, it's important to, to state that. And it's been said many, many times. And for me as a kid, 10 years old, 11 years old, picked up time to time and it changed my world. It absolutely blew the world open musically for me. And, and you may or may not remember this, but you played in Galway Arts Festival 30 years ago or more with Vinnie Kildoff. Oh, and it was... It was amazing. It just was, the two of us. Was it just the two just of us? Just the two of you. It was. Was it in the tie yard? It was. And I had a broken ankle from playing. I, my ankle, I was on crutches from playing football in Paddy O'Shea's in Ventry. I was on the local soccer team. And Vinny had a hangover and he wore shades. I remember, I, I remember the shades. But, and now you mentioned the ankle. I remember the ankle, yeah. And look, I mean, I, I'm sort of blushing because... Uh, look, isn't it, I mean, it's, I'm grateful that, that I've at least utilised some modicum of talent that I have to inspire people. That's, that's, I have a litany of people that inspired me as well. And, and, and you know what? Every musician, no matter who they are, must have like a mentor or something. Do you know, I mean, I go f- to a chat for fiddle lessons. He's a classical musician. You know what I mean? It's it's so important. It really is. But getting back to the banjo, I mean, I was 30 years of age when I recorded that. And and when I was growing up, uh, well, I'm nearly six, I'm 60 this month. So you go back to what, 1968, 69, 1970, 72. I mean, it was just Barney McKenna. I mean, I was, I was 16 or 17 before I, I met Kieran Hanrahan in his house over in Ennis and you, like I was just picking away with one of these sort of red, heard them picks that looked like that with a banjo that was like 20, 20 pounds that my uncle had bought me. And, you know, you can imagine how I felt when I, I mean, he was Kieran and Mikey and Paul Roach. I mean, they were, they were like geniuses. They're, they're, the amount of tunes that they had, you know, and I was, I was, <laughs> there was a, a newspaper, it's still out at the moment, called The Sunday World, and they had this um, advertisement campaign with a white T-shirt. Are you getting it every Sunday? <laughs> hint, hint. I just love this T-shirt. But I arrived down to the Hanrahan's with um, Paddy McNevin, Lord to rest him. He was a Dublin man who happened to come by our village and was going over to Clare, and he saw me as a budding banjo player. I'm going over to see Karen Hanrahan. I never heard of heard of them before. So I said, yeah, sure. So I had just been playing hurling and I had my front teeth knocked out, right? So I had stitches on my lip, no front teeth, and a split, a split over my eyebrow as well, right? My, ha- <laughs> my finger, my little finger was like this. And yeah, sure, I go over, I go over to the lion's den. <laughs> and uh, so that was it. So Mrs. Mrs. Hanrahan said to me, uh, of course, I, there's a tremendous rivalry between Tip and Claire, even back then in the hurling. And Mrs. Hannon <laughs> took one look at my T-shirt and took one look at me and says, Jesus, somebody gave it to you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, uh, oh gosh. So when I was growing up, there was, I don't know, I look, and like, I'm sure you under, every Irish musician knows that's come from a musical family, like, it's just wall-to-wall music at home. My parents, without the music, they wouldn't have lived to as long as they have. It's part of their social the social fabric of their life. I mean, our house is like Grand Central Station. You wouldn't know who. I, I could get down, up for breakfast in the morning, and there could be a stranger sitting at the table having breakfast, having come in from the night before from the session when I was growing up. And so, like, Seamus Connolly, Paddy O'Brien, they used to live and come to the house. There's so many people used to drop by. It was unbelievable. But that's from a social point of view. Like, 
you know, daddy playing the fiddle. And so we had music night, noon and morning. And still when I drop in, there's, she'll have the music program on the radio or something like that. So they tried me on the fiddle when I was about eight and I just never took to it. And, uh, and I was more interested in other things, you know, world or worldly things. And uh, I discovered Radio Luxembourg 208. And so my grandfather gave me a small little radio. So that was under the pillow. So that was like Slade, Rod Stewart, the band, all the Led Zeppelin. Everything was going out. You know, I, I really turned it up loud to drown out the, the fiddle music <laughs> that was coming from my father. Because he played every night. He played us to sleep. So, but I, I mean, so banjo, I just... One night in a session in Gary Kennedy, this chap called Larry Ryan from Limerick came out and it was a banjo in the session. Now, we used to go down with the parents, my brother Mike as well, who plays, and um, this new sound, oh, what is that? You know, and it was just, you know, it just needed so, just something to uh, ignite the the interest, you know. Yeah. I mean, of course, I, I liked it and... You know, when you're that age, you don't think about being a professional musician or, or, you know, investing so much time into it, you know, be it pastime while I, you know, did something else, you know. So <laughs> that was it. And then Barney McKenna was the only music then on banjo. And I'm, I'm talking about like 72, 73. How, Jerry, coming from a, a very traditional background, did you get the interest in, in American and bluegrass music? Because the Time to Time album is not traditional by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it's... Jesus, you want to hear the one that came after it? <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> you know... <laughs> Again. Where did the American influence come from? And I, I say that knowing that the, for me that the sound of the banjo was always that American sound because we would have yeah. heard that coming in on radio and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah, that but, was the program uh, Lester Earl Scruggs, Lester Flat. Yeah. yeah. Now, funny enough, in terms of buying CDs and having interest in different things, the first album I ever bought myself when I had my own money was yeah. Moving Hearts, The Storm, which was like yeah. rock and roll with Ellen Pipes. Yeah. But my dad was abhorred that I had bought this. He was very, he thought it was going to turn me toward the devil or something musically. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he bought me James Kelly's CD as a sort of a cleansing. Because <laughs> he, he couldn't get anything more traditional than James Kelly. It was like going to confession. It was so traditional. Yeah. But uh, well, when you think of the banjo, um, Andy, you know, like when you think of the pipes or the accordion, and let's say you're not from Ireland, let, let, let's uh, transpose yourself as a, from another country or even an American who has no interest in the music. When you hear the harp, you don't think of the books of Orrin Moore. You think of lovely, lush, angelic, surreal, you know, sounds. When you think of the flute or the ten whistle, like slow airs, it's soft, it's like... It has a timbre, let's say, or timber, as they say, down to very all of its own. And when you think of the banjo, it's happy. It's the sound. I mean, even I don't like playing slow airs on a banjo, you know? Yeah. So that's, and, you know, the Dubliners, it was happy music. You know, it was, it was music of, you know, it was ballad music, songs, you know, whiskey in the jar and all that. And uh, was there any was there any worry though that if you brought out an album in the eighties in Ireland that wasn't traditional, that it would be sort of rejected or thrown out? I mean, you really went for it. Time to time is 
you know, well, so it's very, very mm-hmm. progressive. But Enda, you know, I was 31 years of age. The, I mean, recording was, if you talk to any of the lads my age and a little bit older, we couldn't afford to go. There wasn't like computers like we're talking through now. And, you know, I have a little studio here, Wi-Fi, uh, digitized recordings. It was unheard of. It wasn't, it wasn't even on the horizon. I remember the first that little that player, I have one of them here, was supposed to revolutionize the music. So because of that, studios were exorbitant. I mean, and into that equation, there was only about three record companies that had any inter- modicum of interest in, in Irish music. There was Tara, there was Mulligan, and there was Gaelin. So leaving aside the chieftains, who I think were on uh, Warner Brothers at the time, or EMI, I can't remember. Uh, and the price of the studios per hour, they were astronomical. It could be, the price of the studio alone per hour could be 500 quid. On top of that, you pay the engineer. The tape, which the one inch tape or one and a quarter, two inch tape was 170 pounds a roll. You've got 20 minutes on it. Wow. So get your fricking drop ends. And do you know what I mean? This is this is this is this is the environment that that record was was. Um, so was it, was it? A- if you any more than five, six tracks, we'll say. The engineer asked you, Jerry, can you sit down here beside me? Look, see those t- six channels there. Push them up and pull them back. Keep an eye on that dial when I tell you. And he'd have the other six. This is before big automated desks and that. Wow. So, was the pressure intense then? Well, I put it to you like this. They didn't like you going into a studio without a producer or somebody who knew his stuff. Now, I circumnavigated that slightly. But uh, I, I'm really, I must have to, I have to thank, actually, Sean Smith, Vinnie Kildoff, myself. There was a few people that made records at the same time. I think Brendan O'Regan as well. And somebody else, I can't remember. Maybe even Sharon. Could have been Sharon's first album around 1990 when it came out. And um, so, uh, yeah, it was expensive. So you were you were always aware <clears throat> that the engineer would say, well, look, wrap it up, get this tune right. Warts and all, look, we'll just do a few drop-ins, but we've got to keep moving. So... You know, I had a little cassette player that, at home, and I, de- I dem- we dem- the thing is, you had to demo an album back then. You couldn't just go in and wing it. What are you going to play? I don't know. What do what you want on this track? Uh, a guitar, maybe? <laughs> you know, can you take out the maybe and bring the guitar player to come in now? <laughs> you know, so it was a different environment. It was expensive. And if... There was any hint at all that the investor or the company that put up the money, if they were in any way skeptical at all about recouping the cost, that album wouldn't come out. Now, Seamus O'Neill, and I have to thank Seamus O'Neill for this, that he had faith in me, but it was 50-50 when he heard the initial product from the studio. He was aghast, we'll say, at the, the... I had a black vocalist on it, Camilla Dorsey from... Lesotho over the, the Kilfenora jig. What is this? Startling. Funk the Cajun blues. He didn't want, he thought this was ridiculous. And I kept saying, no, honestly, this is going to be a hit. I tell you, this will pay for your fucking CD. This, you'll get your investment back on this one track alone. The rest of the trad stuff, okay. I played it too fast to end up, end up you know, but. I suppose <laughs> when the pressure is on, quick, quick, we've got five minutes. Bow! You know, I just made it a bit fast. But before all that happened. But where did those ideas come from, Jerry? Where was, where was the... Building up as, from as a teenager and all through, I made a lot of my, I uh, survived as a session musician. So so in, in some of the studios, like in Lansdowne, I used to do a lot. STS, I think, which isn't there anymore. And Stark Studios. I, I did a lot of, stuff on ballads and 
adverts for chocolate and Mars bars and stuff like that. So you, you people coming in with different albums, but it was a great time. Like, I mean, there was talking heads were just coming out. It was a whole in, uh, interest in world music before it became red wine, pseudo-intellectuals drinking red wine, world music. We just had an interest in it. There was a lot of really good stuff coming out all through the 80s. And of course, the success of Stockton's Wing, they were, they gave everybody so much inspiration because as our own age group, they were the first pro professional band. When we saw, actually, 20-year-olds can have an, uh, a record. The first Stockton Swing album, it was, we couldn't wait for it to come out because we'd heard them doing all the stuff at the Flat Kills and the Flanu and stuff like that. So when we saw those young guys getting an album deal and being successful, that really pushed the boat. It gave so much, it gave hope to the rest of us at the time. Because in a way, and uh, even though it was after the folk boom, I mean, even Take Irish Dancing was non-existent, being laughed at. And, um, but you could still feel, uh, it's like buying a house at the low end of the market. You, there's only one way it can go, which is up. So the likes of Vinnie and Sean Smith, myself, and loads of other, Martin O'Connor, we were all in that, it was just ready, waiting to explode. And the fires were ready when Sharon released her first album. The, the, the scene, the battlefield had been set. There's, there's where we're going to do battle. This is, these are the airwaves. These are the DJs that will play this. So it happened to almost like by osmosis. But through the 80s, there wasn't a hope of a banjo player getting a solo album. Not a hope ender. Because it didn't fit the what would you call it? The agenda then, you know? It's so interesting because when I started to come into the field of recording albums, it was just a thing that you did. And, yeah. you know, I did my first one 20 years ago. God help us. Yeah. Time it marches was, on. It does. It does. Scary. When you think about the last 10 years, I mean, there is an album a week, an album a day. There's so many bands. But yeah. the, the seeds for that fertile ground was all laid, as you said, with, you, you know, you and Sharon and Stockton's Wing. And before us, you have to kudos to John and, and, and Moving Hearts. Everybody underestimates the Chieftains. My God, without the Chieftains. Yeah. I mean, there wouldn't even be music on RTE without the Chieftains. That's, uh, and the Dubliners. You know, the Dubliners, in all fairness to them, always had two or three good traditional tracks, like Colonel Fraser, Swallow's Tale. You know, they always had John and, and um, Barney. They were a great duet and yeah. Kieran on the whistle. They always had, they always, there was a nod of, there was a, a nod of appreciation to the traditional instrument, instrumentation. And were they a big influence? Were they, was there a big awareness for you, obviously, of the Dubliners? If for my generation, it, was, it wasn't, it wasn't were as huge. important. They were huge. Oh, they were coming to the end of it. Well, they went into a hiatus through, uh, in 1983 or 84, I was in a band called the Wild Geese. We did support to them out in Vienna. I mean, we were playing, we thought we were great playing to two, three hundred people a night. Sophie and Sal Vienna, nearly 4,000 people. Some of them queued overnight to get in. Wow. And Manus Lunny did the sound for them because our, they, they turned up without a sound man. So they used our, our little small PA for nearly 4,000 people. You could hear a pin drop. Wow. It's unbelievable. That, that was an eye opener. And that was just before Luke Kelly passed away. He was, he was ill that night. He, it was sad to see. But um, they were great. Yeah, they were, they, were, uh, they were big. After that, they went down a little bit. And then Eamon Campbell joined them and convinced them to do the Irish Rover with the Pogues. And up again. But it took, you know, 10, 12 years. But um, they had they, they were unfortunate that a few members died and they were very close. Was Barney a good banjo player? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Do you know what? Isn't he the type of? Do you know what I love about uh, Barney? I don't think Barney himself considered. <laughs> he just loved Irish music. Oh my God! Ended. It's hardly a tune he didn't know. He reminded me of my father in many ways. Or you know, you, your dad. You know these older people. You could whistle a tune, oh no, uh, 
what version of the second half do, of that do you have? Or is that the first half? Now, I don't remember who played that, that version. It was a bit like that. Did you know his, oh. bro- his brother? His brother, sure. was a, he was a great banjo player. Yeah. 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 And another thing as well, Ender, they were fluent Irish speakers. Okay. They came from Donny Carney. Oh, yeah. Great. I'd surprise you. They were great. No, no. I think he was, Ender. Yeah. I mean, who did Barney have to listen to before he came on? I mean, you've got to cut a bit of slack there. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I know there was the Ockram Slopes Kelly band had a chap, Danny Tracy or Danny Tracy, I think. Paddy O'Brien told me about him. But the rest, no. Not really. No. no. Yeah, and another thing as well, Amanda, are people, <clears throat> I found it hard to get solo gigs in Dublin when the kids were young, around 19... 19- 80, 81. Now, you'd always have fans that love the banjo and people that hear you in the sessions. Yeah, that's great. But trying to get a gig in the meeting place or Slattery's in Cable Street, or it was damn hard. What do you play? Yeah, what do you play? Play the banjo all night. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it was really fucking hard. Yeah. And it was part of the... I don't even have a word for these type of people, but they're sort of latent... They remain dormant. They're they're in the the undergrowth, the peripheries, but have a have a certain kudos for vocalizing some intelligent utterances about tradition. They would be quite happy if the banjo never even showed up in Irish music. Sure. So, and these people can sway people. You know, they're lurking. They're lurkers. They often don't play themselves, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they're like uh, they're like spin doctors. <clears throat> You've got to be able to to identify those people. Quite, they only smile at you and like to be seen with you when you're successful, or when if they're told that someone else tells them that you're successful. You know these. I mean, it's just part of human nature. I understand. Yeah. yeah. But uh, that's that's another thing that you fight, of course your own age group and when you're a young fella and the girls. Pipers, yeah, maybe pipers are the electric, but accordion players have it of banjo players, guitar players. Party on! <laughs> bring the banjo! Bring the... <laughs> they assume you can sing. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, like, I was, well, you know, that's... So, and the novelty of it as well, and, and... Did you... Did that outsider spirit of the banjo, do you... Did you carry that with you? Was that part of you musically in the society of music? I don't think it's something that you can... um, What's the word? It's not an academic way you could answer that question. I, I think every instrument reflects to some... There's intuition. Your heart tells you. I mean, I think the heart is more powerful than the brain. I mean, I've seen intelligent people do really stupid things, you know. So your heart will tell you what you gravitate to, the gravitas, gravitational pull of instruments telling you something. And a, a banjo, I mean, I've had my battles with it. I was in bed one night with my wife and I said, Marie, oh, we were feeling so fucking, it, just not feeling well. There was something not right. I was working so hard. I was playing the fiddle. And the fiddle takes a lot of time to try and get good at it as well. So I was investing a lot of my time in the fiddle in, in the late 80s and 90s and guitars and what have you. But I said, I think I'll give up playing the banjo. It's, I, I'm up, my head is against a stone wall here. This is, this is not getting me out. I need to do m- more stuff or go to a different type of music if we're to finish paying the mortgage in this house or whatever, you know, something, something mundane like that. And she said, Jerry, don't be mad. Why don't you admit to yourself that you love the banjo? I swear to God, it just took one sentence and or one way of looking at a thing to calm me down. You know, cross again and go the next go the next flight of steps, you know? So I suppose it does, yeah. I, I mean, look, you can I told Fiat, my son. Learn the pipes. If you don't learn the banjo, people are going to slag you. Uh, you're not as good as your old lad or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah. O'Connor, what? Is Jerry O'Connor your father? Jeez, he's good and great. Well, what happened to you? You know, I said, don't leave yourself open to that. 
don't let them match it like that. I said, if you like it, play it for fun. But I said, if you want to go out and play, be a professional, try anything else. He loved the pipes, Davy Spillane. So, uh, um, what's his name? Sean Potts' dad. Sean Sr. got him a set of practice pipes from Piper's Club. And he stayed at it for about a year. And I thought he was getting on okay. And then sure, he discovered, he, he's a man, he's a very active fella. So he went off sailing and mount, climbing mountains and doing stuff, you know, but came back to it then and plays and guitar and sings and plays bar and stuff. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it just wasn't for him, you know. Yeah, I, I've always felt that it's a sort of a rebellious instrument and it, it attracts people with a rebellious nature and you can list them off. The ones in my generation, the Brian Fields and the my, my, my Marcus Maloney's of the world, they were all a bit mad, you know, go to the flat yeah. hole with those lads and you were in for a wild weekend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's true, I suppose, yeah. Well, it is, it is a good weapon. It's a good weapon to have. You know, you asked a question earlier on about the influences. I think if you listen to the albums, I mean, Vinnie Kilduff's album, Steve Cooney is on a couple of tracks. Steve had just come to Ireland as well. And as you say, Moving Hearts, there was a lot of stuff. There was a lot of outside influences happening. And another thing as well is that the people that were playing traditional music would say, some of us who, like the likes of Brendan O'Regan, Vinnie, Marching, myself, who else? Sharon, to a lesser extent at that time, but had been working with singers and people in the rock field in Dublin and Galway. I mean, the stunning, a stunning could turn up at a at a, a trad session just as quick as the harpist down the road. Do you know what I mean? So there was more of a bonhomie or, or a, a, a respect or what's the word? We identified with each other. We were but yeah, I love Irish music. I want to do something with it. I want to do something, you know, I'm not going to destroy it. Please, you know, we love it. We're not going to destroy it. And usually you don't go near, you don't really destroy the melody end. It's it's what it sits on. Will you use what type of a 12-string guitar or will you use a bazooki or, you know, will you use a pad over this? So it's not the tune itself that you change around completely to get, it's, it's what it's, the accompaniment is so important. That's, when an album is hit first, I think that's what you hear. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I, I opened up, you'd think the Bucks of Orn Moore would have been the best safe bet to open up time to time with. But instead it was like nearly 30 seconds of, <laughs> you know, sort of a Tommy Hayes on tablets and, you know, I got that idea from Kate Bush. She had a gorgeous album. Oh, what was it called? It's not The Hounds of Love, but before that. There was a lot of good music in, in, in England and just on the airwaves at that time, Andy, you know. Mm. It became very, what's the word? It's very polarizing now. I mean, you have hard metal, you have rock metal, you have industrial metal, you've got hip-hop, rap. Gosh, it's like, in one way, people are homogenized the way they look, but the music is so diverse. You've got metal heads, rock heads, fellas. Are there any blues heads anymore? I don't know. It's like blues has taken, which started the whole bloody thing, has taken a back seat. I mean, you know, I know some musicians in America, black musicians are even embarrassed when you bring up the blues. It just reminds them of another part of their history, you know. Mm. But Irish people, we tend to embrace it more. Yeah, we are the underdogs. Listen to us. <laughs> you can't put us down. <laughs> well, well, well that, moment, you know. That's so true. Uh, what was it like being in Four Men and a Dog? And another groundbreaking, yeah. uh, uh, groundbreaking band. You know, huge energy, unbelievably yeah. fast. Oh, my God. I tried playing along with some of their stuff recently. <laughs> it's so fast. It was incredible. My hand, my right wrist nearly fell off. The first night I played with them, I met them. With their album came out, it was it a year or two after our Vinnie album and John. You know the, the Mulligan roster came out. They were on another one um, from the north. Oliver Sweeney and Jim Heaney. Was it Cross Border Media or something? Cross Border like Media. The Cross Border Media let out a few albums as well, with Kieran Goss and uh, Francis Black and a few things like that. But 
my God, it was crazy fast, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I thought time to time was fast. I thought, Jesus, I'll never be able to play that fast. Holy camoly, the first night with four men and a dog. I think the first gig I had with them was in Cheltenham. And it was just uh, Brian McGrath, and who played, great banjo player, and Mick Daly had decided, we, I think according to Cal and Donald and um, Gino, it was just going to be a break. They was taking a break from it before they really started to tour. You know, they just had done a couple of tours and I suppose it was tougher than they thought. So uh, really I came in as a session musician once again. I, my, my life scene, I, I've, I've never got my own band together. I've just, <laughs> all the session, the side band. So I came in, yeah, you know, how much an hour and how long? For how long? How long do you want this work going to last? Little did I know it was going to last nearly 15 years or 17 years maybe, on and off. But my God, Cheltenham. Uh, Cheltenham Folk Club, I think it was the first gig. And I mean, God, if I had so fast. And two, well, two, and two banjos for quite a lot of it as well. Yeah. Again, unheard, unheard of in Irish music. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a. I am, and I am. I think when two banjo players get together, you gotta work things out because there's a lot of notes coming there, and you can't. You know, a banjo. You can't hide on a banjo. Yeah. You can't bluff it. Why do you think we, we Banjo 3 started with three banjos and then two banjos, and now it's mostly one banjo because you gotta space them out so far. Yeah, and, yeah, and one person does one, you, does one thing for a few bars. I cover that, and you're, you know, you're covering your back all the time. And then, yeah, it's great. I mean, when it works, it's great. But, mm. I mean, four minutes I didn't even rehearse. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, it's on the album. Just get the album. Okay. <laughs> you know? Brilliant. I was good. I was great. A nice, great bunch. But I'm still friendly with them, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. I just rang Cahill the other day, and unfortunately, poor Artie McGlenn, who produced that album and produced a couple of albums that I was involved with, with them, passed away there, was it in February or whatever, you know. So yeah. time's marching on, and, you know, we're, every year it's amazing. You lose impar- important people yeah. in your life, you know. What was, I mean, taking a total sidestep you did a year at least a year touring with joe bonamassa how did oh, that yeah. how did that even happen i spent four years four wow four years yeah two we, two number one albums in the states and two and a, and a, a movie or not movie, a documentary um well now look and you get do you know i i got I knew the lads that worked with Van Morrison's band, Paul, Paul Moore, Dave Keery wasn't, I think, was Dave there? I'm not sure. But uh, Tony Fitzgibbons, who's a male man, lives over in Mayo, great fiddle player. But Tony was taking a break he had, it's because that's a high pressure job. So I was, to, I auditioned with another couple of So. I seemingly got got the audition. We rehearsed for ten days of up in Bangor in the north of Ireland uh, for American tour with Van the Man, my hero, Gene. I end up. I just love Van Morrison. I just you go back, listen, listen to the strings, the strings, the guitar playing, artist guitar playing on Avalon Sunset. My God Almighty! And these are just songs. Every riff on it, you could take it away and you'd learn something about it. But anyway, his manager rings me up and says, yeah, tour is on. Next Thursday, you're leaving for Canada. I'm below in Dingle in a hotel. Seamus Begley sitting opposite me. I said, what about the visas? Oh, no, 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 visas. You'll travel with Van. I said, oh, 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 stop. I said, you want me to go to Canada and three gigs in America without a visa? can't do it because this might only it might work out I might just get this tour and you know 
Tony's just taking a break. So this is not a long-term option. I was nearly in tears when I put the phone down and said, look, thanks very much, but I was nearly crying at the table on my birthday. I said, this is the worst birthday of my life, Marie. Get me out of Dingle. I want to go home and I want to sulk. <laughs> and it was for the fiddle. And it was banjo actually on one or two things. I think right side of the road, there was sort of an idea that, that there's a sort of a hint of a banjo, even though it's done on keyboard. But anyway, I got home to Dublin, and I'm telling you, Seamus Begley said, take that man home and buy him a pint. <laughs> buy, get him a whiskey. So anyway, I went home, and that evening ended, there was an email waiting for me. I mean, talk about, talk about following your heart, as like I said earlier. Sometimes your intuition and your instinct, really, is better than your brain. And it was a, an email and a phone call, one from Connor Brady, who's a great guitar player in Dublin, says, expect a call from this chap, Joe Bonamassa, his office. So I looked at the email and Kevin Shirley, he says, Kevin, who's that must be an Irish guy? Hi, I'm the I'm producer and arranger with Joe Bonamassa. Can I give you a call? And he, Joe Bonamassa was, I wasn't aware of it really. I knew his name as a whiz kid on the guitar. I didn't know what type of music. I didn't know whether it was going to be LA sunshine music on a Fender Mustang or whether it was going to be blues or Steve Vai, total hard stadium rock or whatever. Seemingly it was blues music, as in BB King, you know, great, great music. And uh, there were, he was wanted, he had this project in mind. He wanted to do an acoustic an acoustic set, and he wanted to record it in Vienna Opera House, which is synonymous with Mozart, and you know. And we just learned the songs, and from there, people really liked it. We did a video of it, and uh, on and off. Then was the way Joe. I didn't realise that he, he has a there's a motif on the on on his trucks, always on the road. And my God, I don't they don't joke. I mean, the tours were up to eight, ten weeks. You'd have a week, two off, back on the road again for another day. So you do the States in maybe four tours in the one year. Then during the breaks, you do um, Europe. They went to South America. I didn't do that. Uh, Japan and Australia and back again, do it all again. So was it so acoustic? It was the acoustic songs I was doing. And then We'd come out and do, I'd play the mandolin, electric mandolin on maybe two or three encore pieces, you know. So we do the first half and the second half. He's a great player, lovely chap. And mm -hmm. God love him. He heard I was playing Irish music and he went out and he bought two or three uh, albums of the Dubliners and came back, you know, he came back like, he, he's, he's like, uh, he's so enthusiastic. Honest to God, he's well-named Joe because he's like a 16-year-old. Hey, Jerry, look, I got your album. I got your album. Hey, man, it just sounds just like our bluegrass music. <laughs> I mean, there's not another superstar in the world that's going to do that in yeah. one of the session players. I mean, you really did feel like you were part of the band and uh, great to work with, ultra-professional. It was hard enough, Andy, because some of the tunes on the fiddle were in E-flat, C sharp minor, you know, you would have to work work at them, but they wanted that Irish inflection in that sort of um, music. There's the, if you ever get a chance, there's um, live at the Vienna Opera House, Joe Bonamassa hmm. acoustic. What was the what was the touring like? I mean, uh, you know, I've toured America, and you do long drives and back of vans, and yeah. I mean, you've done all the hard all the hard stuff as well. I'm sure all over Europe. Uh, what was it like touring with a superstar? Five star touring. Yeah. Give us yeah. a bit of an insight into uh, that. Make me jealous. Well, we stay at the, the band just stayed at the Four Seasons or the Ritz. <laughs> the others stay at the Mar So, you know, but then again, you get in at four or five in the morning from the sleeper bus, you check in, you have to be checked out at 12. I couldn't, yeah, after a while it was just, is this bed comfortable or not? They sound good, you know, but they were booking them all the time. They're not as exclusive as people think. When you're booking, when you're booking five or six guys for 200 gigs in America and you go to the manager of Four Seasons and say, how much is it normally? 
how much are these rooms normally? Seven, eight hundred dollars a night. Okay, for two hundred nights, four or five guys, you get it for half that. Mm-hmm. It's all relative. As Joe said to me one night at the merchandise stand, you see all these caps and stuff like that. They pay for your hotel for the whole year. Yeah, probably one night, one night of sales. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm. You're not talking ten thousand people, Enda. I mean, yeah. you're talking the crowds that you've played and maybe three thousand, but you got to keep them regularly coming. And they have to love you. And Joe has the blues, and there's no one else doing the blues. He's a young lad. Well, he's probably you know 37. He's an incredible player, though. He doesn't. He claims not to even play the acoustic. I mean, God, why did you give so people so much talent? We <laughs> <laughs> do Oh man, I can't play the acoustic. Yeah, I've watched. I've, I've watched him playing with um, Tommy Emmanuel. backing over and it's it's so it, it looks so easy i mean i know yeah. it's not but i've seen tommy and the other chap as well and uh, you know they're not exactly comfortable in his presence are they no. it's not a great run you know what i mean it's it's hard to go into extra time there they're looking at the fact when is the ref gonna blow this on up <laughs> you know that, that's good that's how you get you know but yeah. i mean joe has said it himself like that tommy has the best of everything he's solo himself and another guy out they go to tour He's everything on stage. He can. He doesn't even need a roadie. Yeah. That's, they're great, though. I mean, they work hard, though, and you know that. People say, oh, isn't it great being on the road? That's coming back to your very first question. You know, how do you feel about maybe never, are you going to work again? Are you going to tour again? Are you glad to be home? I mean, it is a lot of work. And the, the, your, your last... Your last set of touring thing was with the Dublin Legends up up to up to yeah. this lockdown. I mean, that must have been a different pace altogether again. Oh, do you know what? It was great. You know, just 10, 10, 10 days, maybe two weeks, three weeks maybe at a push. And, um, yeah, a lot slower. And, uh, but still, though, we have, like, Tom O'Brien... Audio International or the company, their sound company here in, in Dublin, they're, they're associated with the National Concert Hall, Tom and Pat O'Brien. They're at, being at the centre of the sound and electrical business for since the late 60s. And uh, they know how to do things. And Tom, even though he's our sound man, he also our tour, tour manager, and he usually brings a guy with him as well. And plus we have a driver as well who brings a, a little minibus from... Germany so it is it really is I mean but I mean these things are easy to do you know what I mean once you once a group of lads get together and say look if this gig doesn't pay a certain amount and we have to sleep on floors what's the benefit of doing this gig Mm. how is this going to benefit my career oh it'll toughen you up son we all did it no it doesn't toughen you up what it does is it takes any hope and inspiration away from you and makes you feel unworthy now that's as an adult as a teenager fine yeah god that lovely looking girl she's going to be there that, yeah i'll sleep on the floor yeah sure <laughs> if that's okay for for that has its place but when you get older and you and just take it more serious and if you're married or if you have financial responsibilities nobody's going to take you seriously unless you take your your, your music seriously first and when you look at the people like, like, do you know, people like Sean McGuire, Joe Burke, 
Lee Mogg of Flint, the Lord Mercy. All the greats, I mean, they took their music seriously. Joe is the funniest person you ever met. Joe Burke on the accordion. Mm. My God, does he take it? He takes his music seriously. He's done some of the great traditional records. You know, you can have, you can be humorous, witty. There comes a point, okay, that's the Rubicon there. Don't cross that. I won't, you know. Have you any musical goals? Is there something that you just love to do that you've always wanted to do? Or is there something new that's kind of come up in the last while that you're thinking? Oh, there is, Taylor. Hold on. Why don't I just get this here? I've been learning the electric guitar. I've gone back to the guitar and uh, because when you say you've gone back to the guitar, how do you mean? Well, that was my when I was ten or twelve. I had a guitar going as well, but there was no way around to play. You know, I picked up this nice guitar in of all places, Sweden. You see that there? The Americans like this. It's a Blue Ridge. Yeah, yeah. It's um, and it's got a real narrow neck, which like I'm not because I'm used to the banjo. And manners and bazooka, so it's got a nice narrow neck. It's, it's, a, it's a flat picking guitar, you know. Oh, I've got soap on my hands because I'm out of the fucking shower. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going back to try and play just for fun. It's my time now, you know. Like the way I look at it, and I'm, I probably get criticism for this. He said, oh, no, Jerry, you'll be okay. But I've always been sort of slightly pragmatic about things as well. It's a business. Like, I'm 60, right? Can I see myself on stage like a Sean? Sean Cannon is in the Dubliners. He's nearly 80. He loves his music. And I'm looking at Sean. Would I have the energy to do it at that? You know? Like, at 71, 72, 73 years of age, touch wood if I lived that long. I might want to be playing music professionally. I mean, I think about these things. Will I still have the lover? Will I be cynical about it? And every musician that's depending on music for, for the, you know, for the lifestyle and or to keep the lifestyle that they have, can't be. I think you have to be practical. I, I mean, I'd, of course, I'd love to be sitting here composing arias and classical music for movies and what have you, I'm, but I don't have that talent. So I have to be more practical. Do I call it a day and say, right, I'm just going to do sessions, just the odd little small sessions. Can I survive on, was it, what's the COVID payment? 350 a week? Hope for another pandemic so we can collect a bit more. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy, you know? So I just said, look, Jerry, this is your time. This is the time now to do I always wanted to play electric guitar. Probably the way things are, and uh, probably we won't have bands or places or clubs to play for fun for quite a while. So I'm building up a repertoire. <laughs> I love playing the electric and acoustic, and it's just to improve is, you know, my chord theory, harmonic theory, and just it's one it's it's an area that i'm not strong on melody no problem because we we're from a melodic tradition mm. you know i don't get phased by aeolian modes or this mode or that mode whatever you know uh locrian modes and what the chord structure how to almost orchestrate a piece so i find the guitar is great for that uh, the piano is great. I have a piano over there as well, but I couldn't find a piano teacher because they're full with, you know, every, everybody wants their kids learning piano. And, That's right. You know, and then I'm touring, so I'm not going to sit with a little seven-year-old in, 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 in the hallway of a piano teacher. What are you in for? <laughs> piano, son. <laughs> You're too old to be learning piano. Yeah, so, so you, you? <laughs> you know, so this is what you have to do. I mean, so you're going to teach yourself? No, I have friends. I have friends like Jimmy Smith, Anto Drennan. I, I mean, I've taken lessons. You know, you. I'm not at the. I don't have the time left 
I don't have like 20 years left to, to find out that the start of whiskey in the jar is, tr is three notes and not two. For instance, I mean, this is, you think Irish music is hard? Well, let's see, this doesn't slip out. Um, do you know that... Uh, Where is it? Yeah. Everybody plays it like that. But in fact, it's the quickest triplet. That's how he plays it. Everyone plays it. It's really hard. And little things that I'm discovering them all the time, you know, like Peter Green. Really, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I mean, the chords, I can get the chords of the songs, and, but it's the solos, the lead ends, the middle eights, the breakdowns. Some of these fucking guitar, sorry for cursing on your program. Some of these guitar players are unreal. And this is all stuff. They're not learning it or, or, or taking it from another song. They're composing it themselves. So if you write a song, let's say you buy a song, you, you bring in, I don't know, Anto or Jimmy Smithers or some American guy. What's that great guy? Played with Bob Dylan for a while. He actually had the COVID. Larry Campbell. Is that his name? I don't He's know. He's wiped the awe. He's a mud stuff. Great guitar player. Does, has done stuff on uh, Celtic Connections. But if you've got a guest in, and you give him um, banjo, a wee banjo tree song, and you're looking for something, like something different. He's, he's going to have to, and you want to hit. You want, listen, this is going to be a good song. This is going to be top song on the album. I want something catchy on the guitar, maybe on the dobro, and I want it now. We only have today. So there you are. <laughs> and these guys can do it. Yeah. They're great players, great yeah. players. Yeah, I experienced that in Nashville recording with oh. Brian Sutton and Aubrey oh. Haney and they're just like bang, 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 bang. Idea. I've signed, up, I've signed up to Brian's guitar thing, you know, where you learn online. Yeah. He's phenomenal. Yeah, and he plays the fiddle as well to really piss us off. I know. <laughs> I mean, these guys, did you ever hear Mark O'Connor on the guitar? No. Oh, my God. You know when uh, Stefan Grappelli's guitar player broke his arm, Stefan Grappelli demanded Mark O'Connor do the European tour. On guitar. On guitar. This is like when he was, I suppose, I think he was in his 20s. Yeah. That blows my mind because the, f you know, f fiddle and guitar being completely different practices. Yeah. 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 Well, and uh, just follow your heart. Time's running. Let's do it. I, I, do you know what? Right. For any of you out there, I mean, you probably think, well, why aren't they talking so much about traditional music? I've had traditional music in my life since I could hear it from my mother's womb. It's part of the family. I actually don't have to um, impose it on myself. I'm very, I'm very proud of it. Very proud that I come from Ireland and that as a human being, I was born into the, the tradition because it's just so rich music. The amount of people we've met in it and uh, where it has taken us and to think that I don't know what my life would be like if 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 that was deprived from me. You know, how, what would I have done? I'm just trying to think. What else am I good at? There's not a whole lot. I'm just trying to think. What am what? Jerry O'Connor. What? Okay, well you can play music. What else can you do? Tiling. That's right. I tiled my own floor. But <laughs> did I was any joking? <laughs> well, I did. I tiled my own. I'm I, I'm I'm not allowed to do it anymore because I love <laughs> DIY. Electric saws, my wife won't have, but I did tile my own uh, house uh, in South Dublin. And uh, Donald Murphy talked me through it, though. Donald has a company that they, they do tiling and that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I'm just enjoying it, you know. And, uh, you know, and just hope that this. I don't hope, I'm just. Look, there's nothing we can do. We just have to accept the way things are going. And. Yeah. It will pass eventually, whenever that will be. I mean, all these things come over. Thank you for listening. 
If you loved this episode, please head over to our website, webanjo3.com, to subscribe, rate, and do leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. See you next time inside the podcast.